0: Hi everyone, welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today we have a guest that flew in from Germany just to visit us, the founder of Cherry Ventures, one of the fastest up-and-coming funds based in Germany. We're gonna hear all about what they're interested in, towards the end of this podcast. But first, we're gonna start with with uh, Daniel's background, where he started, his first job, and some of the great work he did at his time in Groupon, City Deal, and McKinsey. So, thanks for joining us, Daniel. Hi, Carlos.
1: Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh,
0: you have an amazing academic background. Uh, you know, you have a law degree and you have an MBA, but um, walk us through that first job you had after you graduated from your first degree.
1: Yeah, happy to do that. Um, my way into um, tech and venture was anything than straight. So, um, I started law, graduated from law school. And, uh, not surprisingly, my first job, uh, was in a law firm. Um, and, uh, while doing that, I started with my, my PhD in law, my JD. And while I did that, I had quite some time and, um, stumbled into an internship at McKinsey, um, just out of curiosity. And, uh, and that was then my, my second job after I started in a law firm and McKinsey kind of opened up my mind. Um, I'm native Austrian. I was born and raised in Vienna and also started, um, working in Vienna in a law firm. And when I was at McKinsey, it kind of opened up my, my horizon. I started working with international people, um, started working with people that had, um, chemical degrees, technical degrees, uh, people that came from very different backgrounds. Um, And uh, we were working obviously on on business um, challenges and I realized this is something that excites me much more than uh, than working in law. And uh, I decided to join McKinsey.
0: So I think people have stereotypes about what McKinsey's like or large consultancies are like. Maybe walk us through a little bit about what the average job was like for you. And also what are the frameworks that you learned which then came to serve you later Maybe it's like, we're not going to go chronologically here a little bit, but what are the things that you look back on during your McKinsey days and think, wow, that was actually quite insightful for what I was going to do later in my life.
1: So one thing I I keep on telling people that ask me how I got into starting my own company into tech is that um, there's this one group of people that knew when they were 14, they want to start their own business and they started selling ice cream or whatever. um, And they always had this entrepreneurial drive. Um, but that's only one route into, into, um, entrepreneurship. And I took another route for me, starting my own company was something that was really far away. I always wanted to be, become a lawyer. Um, funny enough. And, um, and kind of getting into McKinsey was my first step into getting into a more business driven way of thinking and, uh, and, and start thinking about businesses and what drives businesses, which is obviously very basic, but for me, very important coming from a law, bi- law background. Um, uh, once I was there, obviously I learned a lot of stuff that later on helped me still today helps me in, in my daily work, even as an investor, which is taking a very structural approach, being very analytical, um, also kind of being able to kind of gather people and, and are able to, um, when you're in a room with very different people that have different opinions, gather them and, and agree on something. So a lot of things that that are helpful. Um, having said that, you also learn a lot of stuff at McKinsey that uh, you can't use when you start your own company. And even more important, um, a lot of stuff that you need when you start a company you don't learn at McKinsey, right? And so, therefore, if someone asked me, um, is was it useful or was it necessary um, to to stay at McKinsey to spend time at McKinsey um, in order to get started with your first company? For me it was crucial because it kind of brought me into this way of thinking about businesses and getting a more business, um, focused sense of, 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 of thinking, um, and looking at, um, and, and problems, um, getting a very fundamental tool set. Um, but there are a lot of people and great entrepreneurs, um, that are starting great businesses without McKinsey. Mm. So
0: city deal. When did you leave McKinsey? How did you start it? Who did you start it with? Why did you start it? And, you know, what was that real catalytic force that got you going?
1: So, as I said, my my way into starting my my first company, which was was City Deal, was anything anything than straight. So, after I spent some time at McKinsey, I took a sabbatical and did an MBA at Insead, um, which... Was besides having a great time there and, and meeting great people, um, it was very important for me because there, for the first time in my life, I got in touch with people that started about starting their thought about starting their own company or that actually did already start their first company, and uh, and I never thought about that before, and that kind of excited me a lot. Insel has a very strong focus on entrepreneurship, so I started taking all these classes, and while spending that year my mind kind of got full of this idea I want at some point I want to start my own company. Um, I left the MBA, I graduated from, from, from Inzert. went back to McKinsey also because I have had to pay back my um, tuition fees but with a clear idea and goal I'm going to start my own company um, but anything besides that I didn't have a clear plan of what kind of business, where do I want to start it. Um, in my first year after my MBA, I was almost there to start a company with two colleagues. This was in, was in 2006. We were about to start a direct insurer for, 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 for auto insurances and quite an early idea back then. Um, but typical McKinsey, uh, three McKinsey's, we just couldn't get it done. We weren't courageous enough or aggressive enough. And then at the end we all ended up staying at McKinsey. Um, and, um, I ended up working very international. I moved to London later on, uh, I moved to Brazil and, um, and in 2009, I realized if I'm not going to do it now, I'm never going to do it. And I was for a founder quite old already. Um, this was in 2009, so I was 33 and probably spent too much time at McKinsey already. And, uh, normally if I would see today, someone who spent so much time at McKinsey and at that age. I wouldn't give him a good chance to, to get started and jump. Um, but I don't know why I, I realized if I'm not doing it now, I'm never going to do it. And, uh, I left McKinsey, I left Brazil, uh, moved to Berlin um, with the idea I want to start a business, but anything else. And, uh, there I had a really good contact that used to work at McKinsey that started a company in the heydays of the first uh, new economy time. And he was so kind. Um, Oliver Bester is his name. He was the co-founder of my toys and um, he introduced me to the entire ecosystem in Berlin. And back then this was a really small ecosystem. So I was able to basically meet every relevant person there within uh, four or five days. And uh, that kind of opened up that entire new world to me. I started thinking about uh, business models, about what kind of setup I wanted to, to have when I started my first company. And uh, that was also the time when uh, Groupon um, um, in late 2009 or in October 2009 had their first large um, funding round where they um, got funding from Excel and other um, prestigious um, VCs. And they were um, valued at north of 1 billion, which back then was a very unique thing. There weren't so many unicorns. And... I was quite intrigued by this business model because not only by the success of Groupon, because, but also because I could relate to it. I mean, I had a law degree, I spent some time at McKinsey, but I had no clue about tech. And uh, Groupon wasn't a very techie, it wasn't a, not at all a techy business model. It was a very kind of offline driven business model. And I think that was one of the reasons why I was very intrigued by this business model, because I could relate to it, I could see me doing that um and and so i kind of got this idea this could make a lot of sense um doing something in that direction and then i got in touch with um Oli summer um the only kind of recently started rocket back then was still a quite small um organization and uh and he wanted to start this business model and um I thought about starting it with him. I thought about starting it with other people. I thought about starting other businesses, and then at some point, I realized um, working with him could help me a lot getting into entrepreneurship and starting my own company rather than doing it by myself. And uh, then I decided um, to to uh, be co founder of City Deal and start that business.
0: Mm. So, what would it look? What did it look like day one? What was the first deal that you guys closed?
1: So that was quite funny because, um, um, there was in, in Berlin, um, at the Schönhauser Allee, there was, um, we were on the second floor and in the ground floor, there was a steakhouse. And, um, obviously that was our um, first uh, merchant. We went there and at the beginning we had maybe two or three merchants and this guy. He was new in business. He was happy to have us feature him. He liked the idea. So basically um, the first couple of days you could mainly only buy this one single voucher, um, which was the steakhouse um, uh, because we didn't have any other deals, obviously over time. And we picked up very fast. We um, hired a lot of people um, in the specifically in sales. We started having more and more inventory, but the first couple of weeks, I would say, were quite boring. Looking at the the group or uh, City Deal back then, City Deal website, um, because we mainly had this one steakhouse deal, and it went well. So we featured it again, 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 um, until I think all Berlin had a voucher with this steakhouse.
0: Nice. Well, one of the things that I think came up later when Groupon started having um, a lot of press around its sales tactics. Was this idea that perhaps the deals were not in the best interest, you know, of, of the merchants. And, and the counter argument to that was that, um, it only provided a platform for deals and that it wasn't in the business of providing sort of leadership on how to create a voucher. Walk us through the sales process that you guys devised in City Deal and how that sales process was, was sort of set up so that both sides would, would understand how, how
1: it would benefit both parties. Yeah. So I think f- first of all, um, by, um, besides all that controversy, one of the major achievements of Groupon was and still is that it showed local merchants, restaurants, spas, uh, small retailers, whatever on a global scale, the power of online and mobile channels. And until then, And they basically didn't have any means to use mobile and online channels for driving their business. And I think this is every other business model that popped up afterwards, kind of targeting those, this target group, I think, um, earns some, uh, yeah, kind of, um, basically the reason why they, can be successful is because coupon made this very first step and showing them this, in, in guiding them through this gate. Um, obviously at the beginning, um, it was very easy because all of the merchants that we um, onboarded um started working with us because they wanted to drive their business. They wanted to get new customers um, and uh, our subscriber base wasn't that big. So any deal um, was easily digestible um, for, for any merchant. Um, over time, obviously our subscriber base grew because um, people love the business model, consumers, customers love the business model. And at the same time, we also realized what are good deals, what are bad deals. So we um, obviously wanted to have a very broad variety on our website, but we also wanted to have deals that um, cater to a preferably large um, target group. So we started featuring um, deals that have a high chance of success and we became really good at that. Um, we've been very global from not day one, but, but very early on, we expanded very quickly. And one of the good things of that and the network effects we could capture by uh, being so global is that we've been in very close contact all the time with any country globally, and we generated learnings on a global scale. So whenever there was a a good deal, a good sales technique, and that worked in, let's say one location, right? we very quickly roll it out globally because one thing we learned very early on is besides any cultural differences, and um, there were a lot of things that were equally applicable across um, the entire um, group on universe, which was what are these going well? What are sales techniques that work well? Um, and so therefore, as a kind of global organization, we were learning on a daily basis. And uh, at some point when you looked at the uh, Groupon website, independent on the city, you could see kind of a theme and a structure that was um, common across uh, um, any coupon location. Um, as, a sub, as a consequence, we became more successful. Each deal became more successful. Um, and that at some point obviously also created problems because um, some of the merchants that people loved and bought um, and Groupons for um, couldn't digest um, that anymore. And um, at the beginning, obviously we didn't realize that, but very quickly we saw that this creates a lot of problems with customers and that creates a lot of problem with repeat customers. Because obviously once you buy a Groupon that uh, no one's uh, gonna um, accept anymore because you can't handle it anymore, the chances of this customer coming back is very low. So we realized very early on, we need to um, implement quality assurance and also kind of make sure what's the limit for that merchant um, that is digestible for him. So um, we had to balance on the one hand, the sales guys that always had the drive to come up with deals that uh, that address uh ideally as large as possible um, audience. And on the other hand, and we split these two um, functions obviously, on the other hand, have um, quality assurance um, that makes sure can this merchant actually handle um, that demand. And um, after some time that worked quite well, obviously there were always surprises whenever we featured a new kind of deal, a new kind of merchant, we never expected to be so, so successful. Um, that it went through the roof. And that was the time when we, um, uh, introduced limits and um, caps, um, that we calculated together with the merchant, um, in order to figure out, okay, what's the maximum that he can handle. Mm. Um, that helped in most cases. Um, still there were problems every now and then when it came to redemption of vouchers because it was still a very analog process. And that was the time when we also tried to push um, uh, systems, technical systems to uh, our merchants that helped them to redeem um, um, on a digital basis.
0: Mm -hmm. So if we go back to the, how you've separated sales from the sort of the intelligence team that we Mm -hmm. help, and we just focused on sales. I think with CDDL and with Groupon, you could argue you had one of the world's like top sales teams, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of the amount of people, the organization, the management of them, the incentivization of them, the alignment of them. Um, Maybe we can spend a a little bit, a few minutes on building out a sales organization. Mm -hmm. So how do you onboard salespeople? What, what, uh, what was the process like? for a salesperson joining your, your company um what were things that you thought would work but then didn't or and what were things that did work that you know that you hadn't expected just a general feel for how to build and think through building your sales organization within a startup
1: yeah so um when, when we started hiring sales we obviously realized very early that sales will be the main driver of this business model um and uh, our first main target group um with respect to merchants were restaurants. Um, so therefore we, we started off thinking, we started out thinking what kind of progress do we need to hire? And um our first idea was we need to get people that sell to restaurants today. So we went to beverage companies or not, we went to the companies, but we we went for people that worked at beverage companies. Um we went to people that worked for cigarette companies. So all these guys that are selling to restaurants and have an established network. At the beginning, that worked really well. Um, after some time, we realized these people, they have a network and they can basically um, milk this network. But once this network is, is exhausted, they struggle into getting to new merchants. It was very hard to get them into new categories. It was very hard to get them um, into other areas or regions where they didn't have a network. Uh, One good example is at some point in time, we thought people from Red Bull would be the best ones because they have the best reach, they have, have had really smart people, everyone wanted to work for Red Bull. But then we realized someone that works for Red Bull is not selling it, but rather distributing it. So they can't really, they don't know how to sell a product that no one knows. They only could sell a product that had a really strong brand. So what we realized is um, it's not about people that have an established network uh, because that will deteriorate over time, but it's more about the people that have the skill to sell any product, that have the skill to explain a product that no one knows, that doesn't have a strong brand. So that was one of the major learnings in the first couple of months. Um, independent of that, we introduced um, a very rigid um, sales training at the beginning. So whenever someone was onboarded um, and we uh, recruited like crazy. So we had every week or uh, every other two weeks, we had um, a new batch, a new class of, of people being um, onboarded. They went through a training at the beginning of one day, later on of three to four days where they all went through. And then um, um, they were basically uh, put into the responsibility of their region. Um, and within that region um they had everyone had very clear targets that they had to achieve in the first week in the second week and we basically assumed after four weeks a uh, sales should be up and running like any other person and uh and then we started measuring them i mean we started measuring we we measured them from the early beginning on but then we basically uh, measured them against them um, all sales people and um again as Mentioned at the beginning, we developed this this blueprint, this cookbook um, of how to recruit a sales force, how to manage a sales force, um, uh, which we applied across the Groupon universe. So basically the training, the reports, the management, the... Um, um, the, the, the kind of, um, um onboarding and et looked exactly the same in any coupon um, city. Um, and, um, and that allowed us to benchmark each other, right. And there was no reason why a salespeople, a salesperson in Sao Paulo should perform less well than a salesperson in, in, in Berlin. And, um, and this global benchmarking helped us to become better basically every day. Um, on the other hand, it wasn't only about activity and meeting sales targets on a pure number basis. It was also about quality because one deal wasn't similar to another deal. So once we realized what kind of deals we want, we always also had to manage our sales force towards getting the right deals. So what we did over time is have a very clear picture of how a perfect Groupon week has to look like. Um, in a specific city and uh, what kind of merchants in what kind of area and what kind of um, sector. And uh, we started giving out very clear um, 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 requirements for what kind of merchants and what kind of deals we want. So at some point as a salesperson at Groupon, you had a perfectly structured week with a perfectly kind of structured um request and you knew basically at every point in time what you had to do and what kind of deal we were looking for and as one of the key learnings i would say is um, from from that time is if you have to build up and run a really large sales force it's very important that you give them very clear structure and give them very clear request of what are you looking for um, otherwise it's not possible to scale a sales force so so fast and 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 still kind of keep quality high. Mm.
0: I guess um we're talking about groupon quite a bit at the moment without really talking about the transition from city deal being acquired by groupon. so for those of you that are listening, um we can jump a little bit back in time and talk about that transition between city deal and groupon. so how many deals was uh, how many um years was city deal operational before Groupon acquired it? Um, it was, um, nine months. Nine months. And then how many deals did you have? How many steakhouses did you have before Groupon bought it?
1: Well, back then we were already quite large. We, when, uh, when Groupon acquired us in uh, May 2010, we had, um, we were live in 11 countries in Europe already. Back then, we realized that um, Groupon will make a move um, into international at some point in time. And, and we knew that uh, if this happening, we need to be in as many countries as possible, independent of if they will acquire us or not. Um, so, therefore, it was kind of land grabbing. Um, and by then, we had already figured out how to get other merchant steps take houses. Mm.
0: And, and how many employees did you have?
1: Uh, 900. 900, yeah.
0: At the point of acquisition? Yes. Holy crap! Uh, how many? How many of that was sales?
1: A large fraction. Uh, don't know exactly the number anymore, but I would say around uh, four to five hundred. Four to five hundred. Yeah.
0: All right. So there's a whole bunch of lessons to be learned here, right? How do you build out an organization? You say, how How many months did you say? Nine months. It was less than nine months. Yeah. So, like, if you is that a hundred employees a month? Yeah. I mean, where do you even find people at at that rate? I mean,
1: yeah, Yeah, it was crazy. So we, in recruiting, we, we had a very similar approach to, to sales. So basically we knew what kind of people we're looking for. And, um, and our recruiters were kind of approaching people on LinkedIn. And back then in in Germany, there was still is this uh, LinkedIn uh, platform called Crossing or Xing. Um, uh, we had to get new, um, accounts because we couldn't, um, send so many messages from one account. Um, and we were, we were recruiting like crazy and obviously at the beginning we did a lot of mistakes when recruiting, right? We realized we had completely wrong people. Um, and over time we became better and better and better. But since we started off in Germany and then very fast in, in, in the UK and in France, um, we generated these learnings very quickly. And whenever we went in a new city or in a new country, we knew exactly what to avoid and what to do. So therefore, again, as I said at the beginning, as a, as an organization, we learned really, really fast. We made a lot of mix- mistakes, but we adjusted also very quickly. And, uh, and since all in, in all of us working in different countries, we kind of could multiplicate these, these learnings every day. And therefore we became a really fast learning organization.
0: I mean, I'd love to believe you on that, but I'm going to push back on that. I I don't know how fast you can learn when it takes, on average, you know, a new hire, at least a month or two to figure out their head from, you know, something else. So how how did you manage to have, or or can you honestly say that you had a fully harmonious organization? Because it sounds to me like you wouldn't even know the hundredth person you were hiring mid-month and therefore you didn't have a personal relationship. that you have no way of transmitting what the vision of the company was. This person probably had very transient relationships. How did you manage to keep the ship together? Because at that rate, you know, there's, there's a high churn rate. There's a high
1: like firing rate. There's a onboarding problem. How did you manage to steer together? Well, I mean, and this, this obviously also created a lot of challenges. Um, um, uh, when you grow so fast. Um, as you said, you, it's impossible that you know um, every new hire. It's impossible that uh, you as, as one of the founders can basically um, explain your vision to, to uh, each of the new um, employees. Um, and then that's definitely created challenges. Um, at the same time, since uh, City Deal had such a big success back then, and every day was a record day, every day there wa- was at least a su- kind of success experience. Um that created a hype within the entire workforce and within the the entire um, company. And I think that helped a lot by keeping it together. Um, um, At the same time, if kind of everyone is crazy about this hyper growth and, and getting into that hyper growth, it helps you drive the company and drive everyone in one direction. At the same time, it's also very dangerous because, um, you, you need to make sure that things go in the right direction, right? And uh, and as I said at the beginning, um, when uh, we had the first merchants that were overwhelmed, it took us quite some time to kind of correct that because the organization wasn't used to not always going and pushing and making it as big as possible.
0: Yeah, so how, how did you... Because to some extent, in such a large force, you would have to delegate quite a bit. You'd have to trust quite a bit. But with such little time to sort of align values, it mean, it meant that you probably had a lot of rogue warriors, people who would go out and try to do things mm-hmm. generally in the purpose of building shareholder value, but completely misaligned at times. So how, how did you manage to sort of get that? How did you map out the organization so that you could delegate, but at the same time, make sure that everybody was a little bit more aligned. Was it, was there like a town meeting? Was there weekly meetups? Was there stand? What, what was the organizational
1: so, structure? So the, the organization looked that the way that um, uh, Berlin was uh, to a major extent the headquarter where tech product um, was centrally located. And then we had uh, local operations and local operations consisted first of all of sales. Um, to some extent uh, uh, or to an important extent uh, t- um, of operations and HR um, and uh, and um, in and what we did very quickly is we introduced a regional structure and so on the one hand we had kind of sales the guys that brought on in in the deals and on the other hand and um, we had operations so these were the people that um, looked for quality that looked for what deal is going to be broadcasted what kind of these do we want what quality we are looking for also kind of looking and, and, and kind of protecting the merchants to some extent um and um and that was all of that was um, locally organized and within sales we very early on introduced a very um regional structure meaning that each city had a manager and later on then each region had a manager so we had kind of a typical sales structure. And um, in order to keep the ship together, we in each country, we had once a week a meeting where all the regional heads came together physically, right? So they were traveling once a week to, in the case of Germany, for example, to Berlin. And there we had um, um, with what we called back then our city managers, so the people that were in charge of a city or a region, we had weekly meetings where we went through every relevant um, topic, every relevant learning, looked at the performance of all people. And uh, that involved a lot of traveling, but that was super critical at the beginning in order to keep such a fast-growing organization together.
0: Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a book right there. I mean, I think you could write a whole book just oh, yeah. on your experience in nine months. Um, well, if if we move along to the acquisition, one of the things that many people will never experience in their life is the acquisition of a large player like Groupon with another nine hundred employee beast that was City Deal. How did you negotiate that? Um, what advice would you give a founder who might find themselves in that opportunity? at uh, some point in the future. And and what were the elements about keeping stewardship over your employees so that, you know, whatever it is that you had promised them wouldn't necessarily be a disappointment in this sort of new merged entity?
1: So back then, um, the, the acquisition through Groupon, which was always the, the role model for this, uh, for this business. And, and you also have to kind of realize back then, since Groupon, the the idea I had of Groupon, a lot of people globally had as well. They realized it's a very simple business model. You need very little means to get started with it. And, uh, and the success and the very visible success of Groupon led to the fact that there were Groupon clones all over the world, right? Um, it was very easy to start a Groupon um, um, clone. You needed very little money and you could have early success in a city right? Obviously it was very hard and you needed a lot of money to, to expand, but get started in one city, um, was relatively easy. And that created a lot of problems for us as back then, the, the largest player, um, um outside of the U S because whenever we entered a new city, there was at least two, three small, um, group on clones that focused on this specific city or, or region. And, um, and, and, since we were still a quite young company, people didn't really know us. They kind of mistook us for someone else. And, um, and therefore, from one day of the, uh, to the other, all of a sudden have this brand coupon. And coupon back then was already a brand because it's very visible their success and it was a big help in kind of, um, becoming successful in this very competitive battle. Um, so therefore, People were super excited about the acquisition. Um, it was also clear that, I mean, we burned cash like crazy. So it was clear it will help us to um, um, get much more funding that is needed to do a global rollout. Um, it was clear that we could basically from that point in time focus on um, executing on a global scale and driving internationalization. That was also part of the deal that the city deal um, um team will uh, drive uh, internationalization, and that was the point in time when basically Berlin turned into the, the international hub of of Groupon, and from that on um, most countries were launched out of Berlin
0: hmm. But what was that acquisition process like in terms of that conversation where you know hey, all right, this is how much I want you to pay me, and this is why and, and this is what it's going to look like and so, that?
1: so um, back then um, it was very clear that um, Groupon has two ways to do internationalization. Um, either they, they buy a player that has a, has a footprint already or they do it themselves. Um, and like many other US companies, especially back then, they felt very uncomfortable um, doing uh, countries outside of, of the US so therefore, um, doing an acquisition, I think for them was, was quite, um, um, a very viable option very early in the process. Um, it was back then super helpful to have Oli Samba, who was back then already a quite, um, experienced um, deal maker, um, um, kind of um, driving this deal. Uh, we then sat together with Andrew Mason and his team and realized very quickly that um, it looked like we, we share the same vision, we, we share the same values and, and the same ambition level. And um, since our company was relatively young still, and it was clear that all the potential is mainly in what's going to be grabbed going forward, the deal was cut out relatively fast in a few weeks. And um, And now looking back, that acquisition through Groupon was actually only the beginning, right? Um, because the, the hard work and um, and 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 the, the tough part of rolling out this model um, on a global scale mm. um, only then, back then started. Mm. So if we
0: look at the wisdom of that, so it's great that you had Ali Summer on your team, and, and, and the deal itself was something that was facil- facilitated with that relationship. But if we look at what a founder might go through. Or what a founder might be thinking today when they're looking at a bigger player who might come from the U.S. and could either compete with them or acquire them. What are the? What's the advice that you generally give on how to approach that relationship? To should they reach out prematurely and and perhaps start building a, quote unquote partnership, or should they be um, waiting and just growing and then you know time will tell what what happens. What what are the? What is the advice that you give founders so, around thinking through this?
1: I mean, obviously it very much depends on the situation, but, um, uh, kind of taking a few steps, uh, um, forward, um, fast forward, uh, looking at Quando, which then I started after Groupon, um, with some of my co-founders from, from CityDeal, um, and which was then acquired by Recruit Holding. One of the important things is establish a contact very early because most companies don't feel comfortable in uh, making an acquis- acquisition fast, right? If there's not a specific reason or kind of specific pressure that uh, requires a company to make this move fast, usually it takes time. So therefore reaching out early, establish a contact, getting to know each other is super important, right? Um, and I think in terms of CTD Groupon, it was a very specific situation because it was such a land grab game. And it was obvious that whenever you are in a, in a country and you have some reach there, it's very hard for the second mover um, um, to get there. So therefore Groupon had really high pressure on making a decision on that. Um, looking at Groupon and how i uh, looking at Quando and how we got acquired through recruit. It's I think a more relevant experience for other founders because in that case, we um, established very, very early um, contact with them knowing that they know the business model we've been in, which was um, a reservation online reservation system for restaurants uh, because they had a very successful business for that in, in Japan themselves. Um, established early contact with them, getting to know each other. Then we also got them in as a small um, investor um, with no rights that also helped kind of working together and over time, this kind of developed into um, into a deal um, and kind of looking back, what's kind of one of the major learnings is thinking ahead very early. So it's not about, okay, I want to send a company who could acquire me, but it's rather thinking ahead two, three years, who could be potential um, acquirers and establish early contacts, figuring out who could be a good fit um and even if it turns out you're not going to sell it it's good to have those contacts because this process usually takes quite some time because it requires a lot of trust and it requires a lot of kind of um within the acquiring organization a lot of um um getting a sense for what we get into therefore i think the group on city deal um example is uh, quite an exception Usually it's more like how it happened in the case of quantum recruits holding what takes month or even years to establish that hmm. trust.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And that that's good advice. So I, I want to jump to cherry because it's, you know, yet another one of your entrepreneurial ventures, but a very different one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Moving away from the product side, things to now the services, you could argue that venture firms are, are service providers after all. So, you know, you've had an amazing career as a, as a leader, as a founder, and now you want to be an investor. So, Cherry, tell us a little bit about the vision, sort of the purpose, the focus of Cherry and how you leverage your background to find the, the next
1: opportunities. Yeah, so um, Cherry exists already quite some time. Um, um, it used to be, um, the angel vehicle, um, of my two partners, um, Philip Dames and Christian Mehrmann. Um, they were also with Jerry Ventures, the first investors in Quandu. Um, um, the two of them back then had been at Zalando. Both of them have been pivotal in founding and, and growing and, um, um Zalando. Philip. As one of the, the the co-founders and CPO, and uh, Christian as their first CMO, and um, and um, we knew each other because back then in Berlin, most of the people in the ecosystem know each other. Um, it was quite small, as I mentioned before, and um, and when uh, we started Quantum, they um, invested back then with their angel vehicle, which was already called Cherry Ventures, and then over time, when I started doing angel investments. We started doing them together. And um, after um, the acquisition of Quando through Recruit, um, I started traveling to the US, spent some time there, or thinking together with Philip Damas about starting another company. And um, since I was a customer of venture capital funds, um, with Quando we had also to raise a lot of money um, and went through a lot of frustration, frustrating experiences. Um, And at the same time, spending time in the US talking to funds and founders there, I realized that looking at the most of the early stage funds in Europe, comparing it to the US, that there wasn't a real early stage VC in Europe that was founded and managed by entrepreneurs. And, um, And we saw a couple of very impressive funds over there, first round capital as the most um, famous one, probably, that had this founder-centric, entrepreneurial-driven, um, early-stage VC mindset, and um, we realized this is a real gap in, in in Europe. And having used this product VC in Europe myself, I realized there is not a single fund in Europe that caters to this um, to this um, customer group in a perfect way. And that was basically a point in time when. Uh, christian Philip, and myself decided we turn cherry ventures which used to be our angel vehicle in a fully fledged institutional fund and create the fund that we always wanted to have when we were founders which is founder centric which is run and managed by people that um, started businesses from scratch that um, exited these businesses that know exactly the pain and um, it means of, of going through this long long path and um, and that was um, yeah the time when when we started going out um, raising money again from institutional founders uh, institutional investors. It was in twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen, and um, given our entrepreneur track record, but also our investors' track record, because we've been um, fortunate enough to be first investors with Cherry Ventures in Auto One and first investors in uh, Flixbos or Lesaras. So some of the um, larger success cases, um, recently in, in, in Germany. We were able to relatively quickly, um, raise our fund. We closed it, um, in less than nine months, raised 150 million and, uh, now investing since, um, beginning of two-
0: 2016. Wow. Lots, lots of, lots of good momentum there. Walk us through the focus areas.
1: Yeah. So, um, stage wise. Our DNA is is early stage investing. Um, We love to do that. We love to be early involved, help founders getting their idea off the ground. um, Also because that's what we did as founders ourselves. Early stage means for us, um, we never invest as a first investment in Series A. We always invest pre-Series A. At the seed stage, we usually invest 500K to 1.5 million as a first check. But then, we want to be not only involved, but we want to follow on significantly over several stages. Given our fund size with 150 million, um, we basically wanted to deploy and we can deploy 10 to 15 million per portfolio company. Mm. So if things go well, we basically follow on for several rounds, but we never lead around once we've been um, already invested. So therefore that means um, the founder with us, with Jerry Ventures, has someone at his side that helps him um, um, find a top VC as a follow-on investor, and then we would only co-lead. Mm. Um, in terms of um, sectors and topics, um, our DNA is consumer tech, since most of the businesses we did ourselves um, were, were consumer-focused companies. So therefore, we love um, consumer propositions. Um, given my background, We also like to do um, B2B models, as long as kind of the B is SMEs. We don't do enterprise in general. Um, We love marketplaces. We love software as a service. um, And we start kind of digging deeper into vertical um, areas from travel over mobility, logistics, healthcare, um, um, food getting deeper into um, um, uh, industry and, and topics over time. And uh, looking at our geographical um, scope, um, we are based in Berlin, but we see ourselves as a European fund. So um, we invest across Europe. We have several investments in London. Um, we are very active in Paris. Um, we have a great investment in Vienna. Um, we look at a lot of deals in, in the Nordics. So therefore, outside of, of Germany, we are quite active now having a team of five investment professionals next to the three of us, and um, we can actually cover Europe quite well.
0: Um, it, it's impressive. And um, for those of you that are listening to the podcast, it's, it's great to have a um, cu- couple of co-investments together, um, Indeed, and, and hopefully those companies will do well with your, or your magic touch. How do you provide support to founders? I mean, I think one of the things that makes Cherry compelling, as you said, is the having the background and the empathy towards a founder, but let's move away from the sort of I can empathize with you and more into the sort of applied. Um, if, if we had to identify the, the key things that you think bring value to a founder other than empathy with your background and your team's background, what what,
1: what would it be? So the good thing about the, the three of us is that um, we are all founders and entrepreneurs, but we have a very complementary background. So in my case... Um, um having always done very sales-heavy businesses. Um, whenever we have a, a portfolio company that wants to build up a sales force, um, obviously I can give them very hands-on um, um, advice and support. Um, um, in the case of Christian, um, who has been CMO of Zolando for many years, um, he has seen all the good and the bad in, in, in on and offline marketing. Um, and in the case of, of Philip, um, who has been the CPO of Zalando, um, and has the most technical background of us, um, he, he obviously can help any founder on any product related topics. Having said that, we all, um, been fortunate enough to be involved in, in hyper growing businesses that internationalize successfully. Um, so that's something that, that we have in common. And whenever there is a specific topic, and I would say the three that I mentioned, obviously don't cover everything that you need, but they cover the major things that you have to worry about in your first one to two years. We sit down with uh, the founders and, and the team, Usually do a workshop with them, kind of structure the task ahead, um, give them very hands-on advice. And then we check in, depending on how often the founder wants our support, um, and and, and see how things are going.
0: Mm. All right. So it sounds like you guys collaborate quite a bit. It's not like
1: one partner has one deal and you don't... So we we split up, obviously, the deals. But given that we have this complementary um, uh, background, whenever you become a cherry portfolio company, you get the support from all of us. Mm so
0: what's left on your bucket list what's left on your list of things to achieve i mean you've done you know three startups in effect and you've been a lawyer you you have an mba you are now a vc with some amazing investments angel investor
1: what's left on your bucket list well i I mean obviously we only talk business here. There's a lot of things I, I want to achieve in my life besides business or pretty my professional career. But um, um, on, on on the professional side, as you said, Cherry Ventures for me is still a very early startup. Um, we achieved a lot given the short period of time, but there's much, much more we want to achieve. And, and our goal is we want to become the European early stage VC brand. Um, and we want to basically um, become this aspirational brand that every founder wants to have in his cap table when he thinks about starting a company. And uh, and in order to get there, we have a very long way to go. Um, and that's kind of professionally what I'm really looking forward, building Cherry Ventures to, to the European um, early stage VC brand.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Carlos. It was great being here.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud And leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.